Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey folks, Ben Wittes here uh, with a special treat for you in the Rational Security feed. Uh, the other day, Susan and I used as our object lessons our forthcoming podcast, the report, which is a deep dive narrative look at the contents of the Mueller investigation. Uh, we've now released the first episode, uh, which we are going to bring you in full on this feed just as a kind of uh, teaser for the larger series, which if you want to listen to, you will need to subscribe to separately. You can find the report on whatever podcast distribution services you use. We will also be posting all of the episodes to the Lawfare podcast feed, so you can listen to it there if you want. We will not be publishing future episodes to the Rational Security feed uh, because, you know, Rational Security is, after all, Rational Security. It is 2014 in St. Petersburg, Russia. In the heart of the city, a small, nondescript office building sits beside the Bolshaya Nevka River. Inside, workers stare at computer screens, open to Facebook and Twitter, furiously typing. Their task? So discord, disinformation, and doubt. Their target? The United States of America. Through fake social media accounts and armies of bots, they are flooding online media with disinformation. This is a troll farm. Its name? The Internet Research Agency. This is The Report, an audio series from Lawfare, breaking down the report of Special Counsel Robert S. Mueller III. Two years ago, the acting attorney general asked me to serve as special counsel, and he created the special counsel's office. At his press conference on May 29th, Mueller practically begged the American public to read his 448-page report, a redacted version of which had been released weeks earlier. It is important that the office's written work speak for itself. It contains our findings and analysis and the reasons for the decisions we chose those words carefully, and the work speaks for itself. And the report is my testimony. I do not believe it is appropriate for me to speak further about the investigation or to comment on the actions of the Justice Department or Congress. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. The Mueller report, as it's known, covers allegations of Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. He also looks at cooperation with that effort on the part of figures associated with the Trump campaign and obstruction of the investigation by President Trump after he took office. But reading the report is hard. It's long, 
It's dense factually and covers an immense amount of ground. It's got a lot of law. Blocks of black redactions make portions nearly unreadable. It's one of the most important and consequential documents of our time. But a lot of people aren't reading it. Members of Congress aren't reading it. Members of the press aren't really reading it. You can forgive the average citizen if they aren't reading it either. This podcast tells the story that Mueller does, but in a format that's a little more manageable. Buried under the legalese is a hell of a story. Part gripping spy thriller, part tale of White House intrigue, part alarm bell for anyone who cares about democracy around the world. The episodes that follow are not a dramatic reading of the report. There won't be hot takes or political commentary. They're just the story of what the report says, as told by the experts and journalists who covered it as it unfolded in real time. You'll hear sections of the Mueller report characterized and read through by Benjamin Wittes, the editor-in-chief of Lawfare. His voice sounds like this. Hi, I'm Benjamin Wittes, and whenever you hear my voice, I want you to think of the brooding omnipresence of the silent Robert Mueller. I'm Susan Hennessy, executive editor at Lawfare. I will be your narrator throughout this series. This is episode one, Active Measures. It's February 16th, 2018. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein makes an announcement from the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. Good afternoon. A grand jury in the District of Columbia today returned an indictment presented by the Special Counsel's Office. The indictment charges 13 Russian nationals and three Russian companies for committing federal crimes while seeking to interfere in the United States political system including the 2016 presidential election. The defendants allegedly conducted what they called information warfare against the United States with the stated goal of spreading distrust towards the candidates and the political system in general. What Rosenstein calls information warfare goes by many names. The intelligence community calls it active measures. Here's Alina Polyakova, a scholar at the Brookings Institution and an expert on disinformation. Active measures is a Soviet term. Uh, The Russian name is aktivne milopriatia. What that refers to is the broad scope of various tools, techniques, and strategies that the Soviet Union used at the time of the Cold War uh, to try to undermine its adversary, which was the democratic quest and especially the United States. So included you know, things of spycraft, like intelligence operations, your standard bread and butter spying operations, but also included things like disinformation and propaganda and the framing of narratives, so something we usually think of as political warfare. Clint Watts is a former FBI special agent, an expert on fake news and social media, and the author of a book on the subject called Messing with the Enemy. The idea of active measures is that if you can't beat your adversary on the battlefield, the military battlefield, you actually beat them on the political battlefield by going into their electoral politics and elevating candidates and issues amongst organic Americans, in this case, uh, that are sympathetic to Russia's view. And at the same point, you basically subvert democracy by creating infighting between any different faction that you can find uh, playing on the, the wedges. 
and the idea is win through the force of politics rather than the politics of force, uh, that you can actually leverage uh, different candidates, different parties, different factions against each other so they can't actually fight you. The report describes the Internet Research Agency as a key part of those Russian active measures. Starting in 2014, the IRA carried out the earliest Russian interference operations identified in the investigation. It engaged in a social media campaign designed to provoke and amplify political and social discord in the United States. To do that required financial backing to fund the IRA's operations. What's fascinating about the IRA is they are an assembly line for disinformation. They basically broke up the components of what is needed for disinformation and then strung them together in a very way that made it look what appeared to be organic of the audience they were trying to influence. So you had some people that would write stripped out blogs, which are just newspaper articles rewritten with just facts. Then you'd have uh, social media personas, which engage in the discussions, which we commonly know as trolls. Um, and they also layer on bots, computational propaganda on top of that, to, to really gravitate audiences around it. That's a way to push your foreign message uh, you know, into an indigenous audience inside the United States. The IRA operation wasn't the whole story. Here's Rosenstein from the same February 2018 press conference. The conspiracy was part of a larger operation called Project Lockda. Project Lockda included multiple components, some involving domestic audiences within the Russian Federation and others targeting foreign audiences in multiple countries. Internet Research Agency allegedly operated through Russian shell companies. It employed hundreds of people in its online operations, ranging from creators of fictitious personas to technical and administrative support personnel with an annual budget of millions of dollars. Thomas Wright is a professor of strategic studies at Johns Hopkins SICE, who tracked the election interference in 2016 closely and was one of the first people to identify as a Russian intelligence operation the hacking and leaking of Democratic National Committee emails. IRA influence operations, um, first, again, were independent of GRU hacking and leaking. They really didn't receive a lot of attention before the election itself. It was only after the election, through the indictment, um, mainly the first IRA indictment, that this entire social media influence operation um, started to dominate the conversation about Russian election interference. The GRU hacking was done by military officers, but the IRA trolling is a bit more complicated. The social media interference side through the Internet Research Agency was not done by the official, if you like, intelligence community, but by a contractor. It was also not, as far as we know, uh, not coordinated with uh, intelligence operations. It was a standalone component. Vladimir Putin is named uh, directly as uh, a person who had knowledge of the operations that were carried out in, in other intelligence community reports and statements that we have seen come out, including the January 2017 intelligence community report that clearly stated uh, that the Russian government was in fact behind the interference operations that we were seeing at the time. The other individual defendant, Yevgeny Viktorovich Prigozhin. It's pronounced Yevgeny Prigozhin. Yevgeny Prigozhin. Yeah, that's right. Yevgeny Prigozhin funded the conspiracy through companies known as Concord Management and Consulting, LLC, 
Concord Catering, and many affiliates and subsidiaries. He's in charge. But who is this guy? He's been at Vladimir Putin's side for years, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Prigozhin's empire is extensive. A secretive oligarch dubbed Putin's chef because his company oversees catering for the Kremlin and other state agencies. U.S. investigators believe Prigozhin's corporation also financed the so-called troll factory that was involved in meddling in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Instagram posts since taken down, allegedly from Prigozhin's adult children, show lives spent on yachts and travel by a private jet. Evgeny Prigozhin is this gray figure uh, in Russia. He has had his hands in quite a few special projects for the Kremlin, the IRA just being one of them. He's someone who is colloquially known as Putin's chef. The reason for that is because his company, known as uh, Concord Catering or, or some version of that name, uh, had the contract to supply you know, food to the Russian military, for example, Russian Ministry of Defense, and other government agencies, which was incredibly profitable. So this is someone that became very wealthy uh, because of the grace of the Russian president. Um, and it was become clear is that he has been sort of this special projects guy for Putin. The Mueller report doesn't get into this, but it's important to understand. Prigozhin does other kinds of work for Putin as well. So aside from the IRA, uh, the other project we know that he's been involved with is something called the Wagner Group. Uh, these are mercenaries, paramilitaries uh, that have been identified in various conflicts where Russia has a stake, including in eastern Ukraine, um, including in Syria. Uh, they, there have been some reports that they're also present in Venezuela. So basically, this is a proxy war group that the Kremlin dispatches as controlled by Prigozhin when it needs to do its dirty deeds um, across the world. In the same way, the IRA was dispatched uh, by the Kremlin via Prigozhin to do his dirty deeds in the sort of political warfare space, not in the kinetic warfare space. As Prigozhin began funding and directing the formation of the Internet Research Agency, employees used social media accounts and interest groups to design a network of fake accounts that could be weaponized through what is termed information warfare. Internet Research Agency was a structured organization headed by a management group and arranged into departments, including graphics, search engine optimization, information technology, and finance departments. In 2014, the company established a translator project focused on the United States. In July of 2016, more than 80 employees were assigned to the translator project. A lot of the information we know about the IRA actually comes from independent reporting and not so much from the special counsel investigation. Um, there are some estimates suggesting, and again, these are just estimates, um, that the IRA employs around 900 individuals. About 10% of them are focused on the so-called translator project, uh, which is the foreign language project, which included the U.S. election project. What we learned from the special counsel report is that the budget of the IRA has grown quite uh, significantly since the operations began against the United States in 2014. The Mueller report tells us that uh, its budget at the time of the report's publishing was $1.25 million a month. This translator department began specializing IRA employees into specific platforms and expanding the IRA's U.S. scope to larger ambitions. Over that period, translator subdivided itself further, 
carving out responsibilities ranging from certain activities on social media platforms, analytics, and graphics, and IT. The Internet Research Agency continued creating thousands of posts across all social media platforms. By the summer of that year, the IRA got even more ambitious, physically traveling to the United States. The IRA's work isn't confined to St. Petersburg. In June 2014, the report describes four IRA employees applying to the U.S. Department of State to enter the United States while lying about the purpose of their trip and claiming to be four friends who had met at a party. Ultimately, two IRA employees, Anna Bogacheva and Alexandra Krylova, received visas and entered the United States on June 4, 2014. The two had compiled an itinerary of information and destinations to visit. The report redacts the specific locations these individuals sought to visit. They sent people to the United States to get a feel for what do Americans talk about? How do they act? What, it, what are the divisive issues? What are the issues that they're aligning on? And how, how to think about doing that, that sort of disinformation programming. Imagine if you uh, got assigned to do some sort of influence in a foreign country from here in the United States and you've never been there before. It's actually pretty tough to do. So what did they do? They actually sent people to the United States to get a feel uh, for what it's like to be in the United States, which makes them much more effective at understanding uh, the media environments. Those not lucky enough to visit Washington, D.C., had plenty of work to do back home. For months, the IRA continued to double down on their efforts. The report describes how the IRA continued to evolve its operations and began heavily investing energy into creating fake grassroots organizations and activist accounts. Dozens of IRA employees were responsible for operating accounts and personas on different U.S. social media platforms. By early 2015, the IRA began to create larger social media groups or public social media pages that claimed falsely to be associated with U.S. political and grassroots organizations. In certain cases, the IRA created accounts that mimicked real U.S. organizations. For example, the report describes one IRA-controlled Twitter account, at 10 underscore GOP, which purported to be connected to the Tennessee Republican Party. More commonly, the IRA created accounts in the name of fictitious but real-sounding U.S. organizations and grassroots groups and used these accounts to pose as anti-immigration groups, Tea Party activists, and other groups associated with U.S. social and political activities. Collectively, the IRA's social media accounts reached tens of millions of U.S. persons. Individual IRA social media accounts attracted hundreds of thousands of followers. At the time they were deactivated by Facebook in mid-2017, the IRA's United Muslims of America Facebook group had more than 300,000 followers. The Don't Shoot Us Facebook group had more than 250,000 followers. The Being Patriotic Facebook group had more than 200,000 followers, and the Secured Borders Facebook group had more than 130,000 followers. According to Facebook, in total, the IRA-controlled accounts made more than 80,000 posts, 
before their deactivation in August 2017. And these posts reached at least 29 million persons and, quote, may have reached an estimated 126 million people, unquote. You know, there are people in Russia whose job it is is to try to exploit our systems and other internet systems and other systems as well. This is Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook, testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee in April 2018. So this is an arms race. I mean, they're going to keep on getting better at this. In many ways, the threat is not new. Russians have been conducting information warfare for decades. But what is new is the advent of social media tools with the power to magnify propaganda and fake news on a scale that was unimaginable back in the days of the Berlin Wall. This is Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter, testifying before the Senate Intelligence Committee. I want to step back and share our view of Twitter's role in the world. We believe many people use Twitter as a digital public square. In any public space, you'll find inspired ideas and you'll find lies and deception. I don't think you get it. What we're talking about is a major foreign power with the sophistication and ability to involve themselves in a presidential election and sow conflict and discontent all over this country. This is a very big deal. This is, this is a whole lot broader than simply uh, the 2016 election. Russia used social media as part of, and I quote, a comprehensive and multifaceted campaign to sow discord, undermine democratic institutions, and interfere in U.S. elections and those of our allies. This is Sheryl Sandberg, chief operating officer of Facebook. We were too slow to spot this and too slow to act. That is on us. This is about national security. This is about corporate responsibility. This is not a Democrat or Republican issue. This is an American issue that we're concerned about, the security of our nation. We're getting hit from every way you possibly can imagine. And you all are the largest, one of the largest distributors of news. It can't be a business model. It's got to be a security issue. It's interesting about the IRA operations that we learned very clearly in the special counsel report uh, is that it was very strategic. Uh, they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly how to build audience. It looks like a PR campaign for a marketing company. You know, they're just trying to sell products and trying to build audience for their products. And they use these exact same kinds of marketing PR tools uh, to try to influence the U.S. elections. Um, so we saw a strategy evolving over time where entities on Twitter and Facebook that we then learned were associated with the IRA um, initially began kind of probing the space in rather random ways. Um, and there's some uh, reporting in the special counsel investigation that started as early as uh, 2015, uh, where we saw some of these entities operating accounts on Facebook. Um, and then quickly after that, uh, the next strategy seemed to be to just develop more followers, to get pages set up that would get more attention. So all the content that was being posted in that early phase uh, was non-political. It was like cat videos and sexy pictures of ladies, uh, things that people tend to look at and like. And then, and once they had that set up, it seemed there was a directive given at a certain point to start to flip that towards political messaging. So 
the people that were following these accounts weren't following them because of their politics. They were following them because they like cats, you know, or whatever. Of course, the IRA didn't create social divisions in the United States. They just capitalized on what already existed. John Seifer was stationed in Moscow with the Central Intelligence Agency. I think which made this most successful for the Russians is we were dry tinder in the sense that our political dysfunction, our tribalism, and our hyper-partisanship was something that was really easy for them to stoke. So Russian active measures, they don't create these problems. They don't create these frictions. They exploit them and they amplify them. And so in 2016, all of these things came together. Their, their, their laser focus on hurting the United States, their desire to do damage to Hillary Clinton, the fact that our partisanship was so raw that they were able to stoke it and push it, and then being able to weaponize social media and information all came together. And of course in the U.S., no secret to anyone living in America, race, religion, these are huge issues that in our society we are constantly, constantly conflicting over, um, having debates over. And at the time, uh, the movement that the IRA seemed to pick up on was the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and they used uh, specific uh, entities that they set up, like Blacktivist is one of them, um, to try to amplify uh, some of the divisive rhetoric um, that was inherent to that movement already, but they would make it more extreme. So that was the strategy. You infiltrate the groups, grow your audience, and then you try to make the narratives more extreme. So it was a way to kind of pull the poles away from each other. And of course, this wasn't just limited to one political issue or one ethnic or racial issue. Um, they also tried to do this with kind of anti-Muslim and pro-Muslim groups. Here's Clint Watts again. And so they did all of this uh, in the Cold War, but it just was nearly impossible for the Soviets to do this successfully. You had to run KGB agents around to fund newspapers or to elevate candidates. That was very exhausting and expensive, and you have the FBI counterintelligence chasing you around. As soon as the Internet hit, and social media in particular, you could recon the entire American audience online. You could do it all from afar, and it became very, very cheap and effective. A central question here centers on motive. Were the Russians really out to help Donald Trump win the presidency? Or did they just want to mess with America? The report describes how the campaign evolved from a generalized program designed in 2014 and 2015 to undermine the U.S. electoral system to a targeted operation that by early 2016 was favoring candidate Trump and disparaging candidate Clinton. The IRA posted content about the Clinton candidacy before Clinton officially announced her presidential campaign. The IRA-controlled social media accounts criticized Clinton's record as Secretary of State and promoted various critiques of her candidacy. What's really interesting about the special counsel investigation is that it goes a little bit against, I think, what has become the dominant narrative that the IRA and Russian information campaign in general was set up to help Donald Trump win. What we see is that, based on the content they were publishing, they were set up to divide Americans. Um, they weren't set up to help one candidate over the other. And initially, most of the content that became political um, in terms of supporting or not supporting certain candidates in the presidential election was more anti-Hillary. 
So that was clear. But then, of course, as uh, Donald Trump becomes the front runner and eventually wins the nomination and then starts saying very positive things about wanting a close relationship with Russia and really liking Mr. Putin, um, it seemed obvious who the, uh, you know, the Russian choice would be. So it was only then that the accounts started turning pro-Trump. Um, still keeping the anti-Hillary messaging, but then increasingly as we neared the elections that started really over the summer of 2016, they amped up the pro-Trump content. Here's John Seifer again. But personally, what happened in 2016, I think is wholly consistent with Russian policy over time of using active measures and trying to weaken the West and, and having a disdain for the U.S. foreign policy process and institutions, that attacking Hillary Clinton was probably more important necessarily than electing Donald Trump. But by luck and by chance, they had a Republican candidate who was not anti-Russian, who was pro-Russian, clearly, and who also was a bit of a chaos candidate and a bull in a china shop, which also benefited their needs, who was sort of disparaging of U.S. allies. The same is true for a series of rallies that the IRA tried to organize in the United States. IRA employees communicated with Americans, but the Americans were unwitting. They didn't know they weren't dealing with fellow citizens. The IRA organized and promoted political rallies inside the United States while posing as U.S. grassroots activists. First, the IRA used one of its existing social media personas, a Facebook group, a Twitter account, for example, to announce and promote the event, The IRA then sent a large number of direct messages to followers of its social media accounts asking them to attend the event. From those who responded with interest in attending, the IRA then sought a U.S. person to serve as the event's coordinator. In most cases, the IRA account operator would tell the U.S. person that they personally could not attend the event because of some pre-existing conflict or because they were somewhere else in the United States. The IRA then further promoted the events by contacting U.S. media about them and directing them to speak with the coordinators. After the events, the IRA would post videos and photographs to the IRA's social media accounts. Dozens of such U.S. rallies were organized by the IRA. The earliest evidence of a rally was a Confederate rally in November 2015. The IRA continued to organize rallies even after the 2016 U.S. presidential election. The attendance at rallies varied. Some rallies appear to have drawn few, if any, participants, while others drew hundreds. The reach and success of these rallies was closely monitored in St. Petersburg. Russians also recruited and paid real Americans to engage in political activities, promote political campaigns, and stage political rallies. The defendants and their co-conspirators pretended to be grassroots activists. According to the indictment, the Americans did not know that they were communicating with Russians. After the election, the defendants allegedly staged rallies to support the president-elect, while simultaneously staging rallies to protest his election. 
in a few instances, IRA employees represented themselves as U.S. persons to communicate with members of the Trump campaign in an effort to seek assistance and coordination on IRA-organized political rallies inside the United States. So I think one of the most uh, shared um, or followed groups uh, was called Muslims United for Hillary, for example. It sounds positive, uh, but in fact, it was, it was being used to, for example, start rallies, right? So one, then the IRA started using their access and their trust base to contact Americans and to try to get Americans to actually organize rallies on the ground. And then they would do this with the opposite group, right? So they would try to set up some sort of violent clashes. So you would have two groups on opposite sides of the spectrum, so pro-Muslim, anti-Muslim, show up in the same space at the same time and hopefully get into a fight to kind of exacerbate the, the image of a U.S. as a country that's completely wrought uh, by political conflict, ethnic and racial conflict. The Trump campaign and associates certainly viewed the IRA as pro-Trump. The IRA provoked reactions from users and the media. Multiple IRA-posted tweets gained popularity. U.S. media outlets also quoted tweets from IRA-controlled accounts and attributed them to the reactions of real U.S. persons. And some real U.S. persons, including famous ones like former ambassador to Russia Michael McFaul, Roger Stone, Sean Hannity, and Michael Flynn Jr., retweeted or responded to tweets posted to these IRA-controlled accounts. Multiple individuals affiliated with the Trump campaign also promoted IRA tweets. Tennessee GOP backs at real Donald Trump, period. Like and share if you want the burqa banned. You can now vote online in the U.S. The media will never let you see this. The USA is a police state. USA is this a football coach with the South. The whole make season again. This is what the media doesn't want to see. However, the Mueller report makes clear that there is no evidence to suggest that any of them knew these tweets were actually from Russian actors. Nobody inside the Trump campaign knowingly engaged with Russian actors. That said, the investigation identified two different forms of connection between the IRA and members of the Trump campaign, and notably, it identified no similar connections between the IRA and the Clinton campaign. On multiple occasions, members and surrogates of the Trump campaign promoted, typically by linking, retweeting, or similar methods of reposting, pro-Trump or anti-Clinton content published by the IRA through IRA-controlled social media accounts. In total, Trump campaign affiliates promoted dozens of tweets, posts, and other political content created by the IRA. I'd like to call this hearing to order. I apologize to our witnesses that uh, we had a vote that was called at 10 o'clock. This morning, the committee will engage in an activity that's quite rare for us, an open hearing on an ongoing critical intelligence question, the role of Russian active measures past and present. Uh, Mr. Watts? Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, thank you for inviting me here today. Here's Clint Watts again. He gave famous testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee on the relationship between Russian active measures and the Trump campaign. My question is, this is not new for the Russians. They've done this for a long time across Europe. 
but he was much more engaging this time in our election. Why now? Mr. Watts. I think this answer is very simple and is what no one is really saying in this room, which is part of the reason active measures have worked in this U.S. election is because the Commander-in-Chief has used Russian active measures at time uh, against his opponents. On 14 August 2016, his campaign chairman, after a debunked insurrection... When you say his, who's, who's his? Paul Manafort okay. uh, cited the fake insurrection story as a terrorist attack on CNN, and he used it as a talking point. Uh, on 11 October, uh, President Trump stood on a stage and cited a, what appears to be a fake news story from Sputnik News that disappeared from the Internet. Uh, he claimed that the election could be rigged. That was the number one theme pushed by RT, Sputnik News, white outlets, all the way up until the election. Uh, he's cl made claims of voter fraud, that President Obama is not a citizen, that, you know, uh, Congressman Cruz is not a citizen. So part of the reason active measures works and it does today in terms of Trump Tower being wiretapped is because they parrot the same lines. So Putin is correct. He, he can say that he's not influencing anything because he's just putting out his stance. But until we get a firm basis on fact and fiction in our own country, we're going to have a big problem. I can tell you right now today, gray outlets that are Soviet-pushing accounts tweet at President Trump during high volumes when they know he's online, and they push conspiracy theories. This indictment serves as a reminder that people are not always who they appear to be on the Internet. The indictment alleges that the Russian conspirators want to promote discord in the United States and undermine public confidence in democracy. We must not allow them to succeed. I think they're highly effective because we're still talking about it today. I think that's the best demonstration that from Russia's perspective, even if they don't get every single tactical thing they want from the Trump administration, we are still tied in knots in America in our own political system. We're still talking about a Mueller report. We are still having congressional hearings. We have two sides uh, arguing over whether it even happened or not. So did any of this work? Did the IRA change the outcome of the U.S. election? We don't know. And Robert Mueller doesn't know either. And that's the difficult part to parse out of all of this. How do you begin to measure the influence of armies of bots and trolls filling millions of American social media, reaching millions of voters who rely on countless different inputs in deciding who to vote for and whether to vote at all? Was the Internet Research Agency just riding the wave of division, or was it manufacturing it? What we do know is this was calculated. They intended to do harm. And by and large, our media and largest online platforms were unwittingly aiding in that effort. And the Republican nominee Donald Trump and his associates were amplifying it as well. This is an alarm bell in the Mueller report that is worth paying attention to. For all we know, similar plots are being formed as we speak. From an inconspicuous office in St. Petersburg, a small army of Russian trolls, bots, and well-financed oligarchs pooled at the fringes of our democracy. And that's just the beginning. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. Thank you for listening to part one of the report. 
The report is produced by Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. Ian Enright is the executive producer. From the Lawfare team, editor-in-chief is Benjamin Wittes, executive editor, Susan Hennessy. Quinto Jurassic conducted the interviews and Michaela Fogel recorded them. Voicing by Benjamin Wittes, Susan Hennessy, Quinto Jurassic, Hadley Baker, and Vishnu Kanan. Special thanks to Alina Polyakova, Clint Watts, John Seifer, Thomas Ridd, and you, the listening audience. To support this show, please share this podcast wherever you can. And while you're at it, please subscribe and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Until next time. You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us. Thank you.